1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Pagonis, and I'm your host for this episode. Today, I'm speaking with Catherine Carroll about her new book, Building Schools, Making Doctors, Architecture, and the Modern American Physician, published by University of Pittsburgh Press in May of this year, 2022. Catherine Carroll is an architectural historian based in Albany, New York. Support for her research has come from the Graham Foundation for Advanced Studies in the Fine Arts, the Henry Luce Foundation, American Council of Learned Societies, the Francis A. Countway Library of Medicine, and the Rockefeller Archive Center. She's presented widely on medical school design and taught most recently at Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts. She holds a bachelor's degree from Williams College and a PhD from Boston University. Catherine, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, I'm really delighted to have you here speaking to us about your book. And would you begin by telling us a bit about your background and how you came to write about architecture and medical schools?
1: Well, I'm I'm trained in the history of art and architecture, so I'm not by formal training a medical historian, which means that I came to architecture and medicine through the lens of architecture. I was living in Boston and was introduced to Harvard Medical School's campus, which for those who aren't familiar, it's At the heart of the campus is this large, imposing, five-building marble quadrangle. And I started to do some research on it. From there, you know, fast forward more than a decade, and the project grew tremendously to become national in scope. And I came to recognize that in the late 19th and early 20th century, medical education and medical school design transformed simultaneously in a way that was deeply intertwined. And what became so exciting to me about this project was the opportunity to engage with themes from many, uh, from a wide uh, a wide spectrum. So architecture and science, pedagogy, patronage, race, gender, and, and this breadth is really what made it um, both very exciting and also quite challenging.
0: Hmm. So it started with the Harvard Quadrangle.
1: Yes, <laughs> many
0: years ago. Which, if anyone's seen it, it's definitely an impressive um, place. So your period of study begins in 1893, and that's when Johns Hopkins Medical School decided to erect a specific kind of campus uh, based on the Institute plan. And would you explain what the Institute plan was and what made this a particularly significant event?
1: So the opening of Johns Hopkins Medical School in 1893 is typically cited as the inauguration of the format of medical training roughly still in place today. So two years of basic science education followed by two years of clinical instruction. When I started to dig into the archives, it became very clear that from the early days of this pedagogical transformation in medical training, architecture was at the center of the conversation. Medical educators who are involved in this change believed the design of the buildings would shape the type of work undertaken in their halls and ultimately impact the type of physicians and researchers that the schools produced. Johns Hopkins Medical School, along with the faculty at Harvard Medical School and a handful of other places, decided to draw on what they had seen studying in Germany And what this meant was that they divided their campuses into separate buildings with each building devoted to a specific subject or two. And they called this the Institute design. Now, this was a departure. Um, The decision to construct separate buildings challenged the prevailing design in the U.S., which at the time focused on creating a single building for medical training. The faculty who championed the Institute design celebrated the uh, conceptual and physical autonomy between the different areas of science, so anatomy, physiology, pathology, etc. Where this, I think, becomes um, maybe takes a surprising twist is that the institute design never becomes widespread. Only a handful of schools adopted it, but I begin with it in the book because the champions of this design came from elite schools and were very, very vocal And so the influence in the Institute design continues to heavily inflect the conversation about how a medical school building should be designed for decades. And so in a, in a kind of general sense, it sort of has an outsized impact for the number of schools that construct the Institute plan or the Institute design, but because it is so seminal, um, it really requires a deep, a deep dive. And did those
0: schools then, uh, stay with the institute plan or did they later abandon it?
1: Oh, that's, that's a great question. Um, so essentially, once it was uh, in stone, so to speak, it was very expensive and very difficult to change. Um, but uh, for Harvard, for example, um, decades later, the dean writes this letter and says, you know, we've We've essentially had to do our best to um, to build bridges where there were no bridges, is sort of what he says, and, and to bring the, um, the campus up to date um, because this original idea is no longer um, what we're trying to do here. And so they modify what they have, but it's still a challenge to do because... Um, because of the limits of architecture and the construction themselves. I do, there's also another um, letter where someone who's reviewing medical schools in the 1930s writes that um, one, he doesn't name the school, but one of the schools had considered, one of the institute design schools had considered entirely abandoning the campus and starting over again. It's, that doesn't ever happen as far as I know, but, um, but it was definitely a challenge for the schools who had these buildings.
0: Yeah, oh, that's pretty radical to abandon the whole.
1: Yeah, building. like I said, I don't think that ever happened, but it, it was even an idea I think is speaks to the frustration that the faculties were having.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And to their belief in the impact of architecture.
0: Yes. Um, so there were so many different aspects of medical education and, and building design that came up in this book. One thing that struck me is that many of us may not associate museums with doctors in training. So what was the role of museums in medical schools and why did they become obsolete?
1: Well, at the turn of the 20th century, as part of what I keep referring to as this transformation in medical education, nearly every medical school in the country rebuilds its facilities and I break these facilities into two general categories. There's the institute design, which I've mentioned, and then what I call the unified plans or single building designs where all of the spaces are housed under one roof. These designs would have differed dramatically in their campus footprints, but they had a lot in common in terms of what they housed within the buildings. Um, In both cases, the facilities would have been much, much larger than the school's previous homes. Um, We had just mentioned Harvard, so I can say that um, that is a five-building quadrangle, and each of those five buildings was larger than the school's previous home. So that gives you a sense of how dramatically these schools were growing. And within these spaces, they had many, many um, facilities, which were often quite new. So they have much more extensive laboratories, storage for cadavers, housing for research animals, library facilities, lecture halls, um, And one component of this very um, multidimensional building was often a museum. So the reason to have a museum, which I should back up and say, was a collection of typically anatomical or pathological material or both. And then sometimes also skeletons, models, medical instruments, portraits, that type of thing might be included in the museum. But the purpose of these collections was to allow students and faculty who are engaging in education and research to study typical, atypical, or diseased body parts. What, um, what happens is medical museums predate medical school reform, um, the medical school reforms in the late 19th and early 20th century, but the faculties retain them because they provided another opportunity for hands-on learning. And hands-on learning was one of the real kind of critical components of reformed medical training. So especially if a school was struggling to obtain cadavers and had limited opportunities for dissection, museums could be critical hands-on educational tools. But by the 1920s and 1930s, faculty increasingly don't see museums as significant for education and research. And there's a lot of reasons for why that happens, but um, I can give you just a few examples. First, faculty prefer so-called fresh material rather than preserved specimens, and fresh material by this point was easier to obtain. In addition, uh, shifts in research directions made the museum less relevant. Um, another, another component is that the quality of textbook photographs was in, or illustrations was improving, which may have limited the utility of the museum. So you can see how, sort of, from many different directions, the museum becomes um, less relevant. And by by the 60s, yeah, I was gonna say by the 60s, you know, then the faculties had really sort of reassigned these museum spaces to other uses. So it, it, they sort of um, start to become less relevant by the 30s. But then over the next several decades, the spaces get reassigned.
0: Yeah. Oh, and I was just going to ask, were they ever visited by members of the public?
1: Oh, okay. So um, on occasion, they were. Um, but when I when you look at the floor plans, they really weren't put in places that were very accessible generally. So yes, there are a few examples where you know they were designed with the public in mind, but that was certainly um, the exception rather than the rule.
0: Yeah, great. Uh, well, in chapter one, let's, let's start from chapter one, uh, you note that science has held different meanings, meanings throughout medical history. Uh, but in the 19th century, it became largely associated with laboratory science. So I'm wondering, what was the relationship between science, medical school design, and medical practice in the late 19th and early 20th centuries?
1: Yeah, this is, this is an excellent question. Um, on the most basic level, the shift toward laboratory science, and we can add to that also the embrace of new technology, such as the X-ray, in the clinical setting, required a change in how students trained. In other words, they had to learn first to value the new laboratory techniques, how to use them in the clinical setting, and quite frankly, in this period, how to literally run the tests themselves. They weren't often handing that off to someone else. Um, So it makes sense that we would expect that if you construct new medical schools across the country, which is what happened, and these facilities provide extensive resources for laboratory training, then students will practice medicine differently than their counterparts who hadn't received that training. I think where the research becomes thornier is that medical educators in the period argued passionately that the different types of medical school design would impact how students practice medicine. So if we, if we return to this example of the institute design versus the unified designs, medical faculties believe that these variations in design would impact how students conceptualize science and eventually how they practice medicine. In their minds, students who learned in unified buildings where all the subjects were aligned under one roof would conceive of the medical sciences as an integrated whole rather than as the sort of discrete subjects promoted by the institute design. But but we don't have great methods for documenting the impact of this thinking. But just because we can't necessarily document how that played out, I don't think we can ignore it because, you know, if for no other reason than... Um, this belief contributed to the pro- to the prominence of the unified designs in the U.S. in the early 20th century, and and the piece I didn't tell of the story earlier is that you know we have unified designs, then we have this really vocal group of faculty who are trying out the institute design, but then ultimately it shifts back to um, the unified designs in terms of what uh, is being promoted. So um, so these beliefs really inflect those decisions. Uh-huh.
0: That's really interesting because that unified design and seeing science medical science as an integrated whole because it seems like more recently medical science has been become very disparate again with all the different specialties.
1: Well and I think you know when we put this in historical context in the it, around the turn of the 20th century, this is when the specialties are really burgeoning right You didn't really have sp- uh, specialization before this time period and so when you even look in terms of the number of departments within medical schools in these decades, they grow tremendously. And so um, there is certainly an, an anxiety about this for a lot of people, a concern about this. And I think that that we need to see the unified designs as a pushback against specialization in many ways.
0: So uh, the Flexner Report in 1910, as many of our listeners will know, had a huge impact on medical education, uh, but as you tell it, it also had an influence on medical school design. How did the report influence medical school design?
1: Well, what was well, certainly a surprise to me and maybe a surprise to, to the listeners as well, is that Abraham Flexner was very um, invested in buildings. He cared about buildings. He thought about buildings a lot. Um, his correspondence at the GEB, he's often talking with the schools that he is supporting um, about about um, the buildings, uh, the GB being the General Education Board. I'm, I'm jumping a little bit forward in his life, but beginning in his report, or really while he was undertaking the research for the report, uh, Flexner centers physical space and medical school design. There are six categories that Flexner uses to evaluate medical colleges uh, for the Flexner report, and two of them were laboratory and clinical facilities. And when you go through his comments and you start to compile his comments uh, in these areas, he's advocating consistently for clean, well-organized schools with extensive laboratory space and affiliated hospitals with adequate patient volume. He's also promoting placing all four years of medical training on one physical campus. To us today, these ideas uh, probably seem rather basic, but as we know, um Few schools met Flexner standards in 1910, and these were really very progressive ideas. Later in the decade, as I alluded to previously, he begins working for the General Education Board, the GEB, where he leads their medical education program, and he allocates funds for a number of medical school construction projects, which gave him the opportunity to put in place um, many of the ideas he outlines in the Flexner Report. And typically, other philanthropic foundations follow his lead.
0: And, and I wonder, um, because if I recall correctly, you, you write that he it's not really clear who chose him to have this this role that he played in medical education. So could you tell us just a bit about his background, who he was?
1: Sure. Um, so he is uh, from Louisville, Kentucky. he um, goes to Johns Hopkins, gets his undergraduate degree, returns to Louisville, runs uh, runs as the head of a uh, of a private school, I think I think for something like 19 years, it's a long time, um, before he then leaves and goes to Harvard where he gets a master's degree. He writes a book um, and ultimately is hired, as, as, as you say, for not very clear reasons, um, by the Carnegie Foundation to undertake this survey of medical schools across the United States and Canada, um, and, uh, and ultimately shows that he's very adept at these types of surveys. And this really um, launches him into doing some work for the Rockefellers. He ultimately then uh, becomes part of the General Education Board, um, working which is a Rockefeller Foundation, um, is there until nineteen twenty-eight. Um, then goes on to a whole other career. So he has this very, um, very uh, I, uh, dynamic <laughs> and changing career, and is certainly um, great. Great deals have been written about him, and uh, and it, you know there's there's much to learn there. Yeah.
0: And we'll get back to the general education board in just a little bit, but I want to ask uh, something else first, which is about the medical school hospital or teaching hospital. I think that's something that we today are all familiar with. It's embedded in our notion of healthcare even, but it wasn't always that way. So how did the medical school hospital come to be? And what was the underlying idea there and how did it manifest architecturally?
1: A teaching hospital is a hospital where medical students and residents learn. Um, It can can have any design. It's not not just the medical school hospital, but but one type of teaching hospital is a building type that I term the medical school hospital hyphenated. Um, And in these cases, in the case of this particular design, medical educators took the idea of physical and conceptual unification beyond just the preclinical subjects and applied it to the entire four-year medical school curriculum. So the architectural result was incredibly complicated. It was um, a building that put under one roof all of the facilities for preclinical training from anatomy to, um, you know, to the full physiology, the full spectrum of the preclinical subjects, and then all of the clinical facilities from the emergency room to the surgical suite, entirely under one roof. And this design became very popular beginning in the mid-1920s. And the underlying idea was that it would encourage students and faculty not only to understand the branches of medicine as a unified whole, but in particular to align the laboratories with the clinic. And again, you know, we had mentioned specialization earlier, and there's so much concern about, you know, are the preclinical scientists talking and faculty talking to the clinical faculty and how do we create collaboration and integration? And and so this was um, meant to be an architectural impetus uh, to encourage that type of of communal um, discourse. Hmm. And did it? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, that, that is um, a really uh, great question. Um, I think, uh, there are certainly faculties that say yes, it absolutely did. Um, if you, uh, the Vanderbilt faculty, that's one example of a medical school hospital and they, um, were very pleased and talked a great deal about how it contributed to their scientific efforts and, and they said yes. Um, but there's, but it's more complicated than that. Um, there are also, many indicators that changing the architecture does not necessarily change people's behavior. And, um, I go into a lot of uh, specific examples in the book. Um, but, uh, but it's much easier to, um, to create architectural change than necessarily to, to change a pedagogical ethos. And so, um, and so that, that is, it is not as clear cut as that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, I can imagine. So, Um, So I'd like to go back to the General Education Board. And in Chapter 3, it's really interesting. You describe how donors, including private philanthropists and foundations, became critical to the construction or indeed to the survival of medical schools. Um, But as you describe it, just one of them, which is the the General Education Board or the GEB, left a lasting mark. And I'm particularly interested in the GEB's influence on medical colleges for women uh, and Black medical students.
1: So would you tell us about that? Sure. Um, I think backing up just a little bit, many individual philanthropists and foundations left a lasting mark. Um, But what separated the GEB was its national program and the scale of its work. And and we need to remember that in this time period, there's no federal funding for medical education. Um, And so the GEB was really um, the only organization that was crafting this kind of national agenda and then contributed to the construction efforts of 15 medical schools around the country. So there's just no one else who's living leaving as sort of broad a footprint as the GEB is. As, we, as we've mentioned already, Abraham Flexner was the one responsible for the GEB's program in medical education. And the GEB's program, not surprisingly, grew out of the ideas that he had outlined earlier in the Flexner report including very specific ideas about the education of white women, black women, and black men. Simply put, he didn't support um, single-sex education for women. Um, In the Flexner Report, he advised potential donors who wanted to support women in medicine to support coeducational institutions. Um, In in his language, something to the effect that if you support a coeducational institution, then the benefits will be shared by men um, without a loss to women students. Of course, there's a lot that we could dig into with that (laughs) quote. (laughs) There's there's a lot there. Um, But suffice to say, he was not going to then support um, a single-sex school for women when they approached the GEB. Um, Only one single-sex school for women, Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania, survives the period of medical education reform. They do approach Flexner, and Flexner turns them down um, for financial support. No major donor is willing to support Women's Medical College um, and particularly its efforts to create a modern medical school building. It finally is able to open a new building in 1930, but it is then saddled by a substantial loan that they took out to create the building, and the facility is very small. The faculty um, to to create this, uh, this very small structure um, cut dedicated research space from the building program. And this is really problematical because this is the same period when research increasingly serves as the primary barometer for individual and institutional recognition. So sort of just as research is really becoming this big thing, um, women's medical college can't uh, keep up, can't, doesn't have the facilities to support this, and it becomes a handicap. At the same time, the sort of second piece of, of this um, building program is that while Women's Medical College provides its students with comprehensive medical training across all the specialties, the building um, is designed to emphasize the specialties most closely associated with women physicians, obstetrics, gynecology, pediatrics, and public health. And as, as we have kind of hinted at already, space is rarely as flexible as designers like to think. And so codifying these types of gendered associations has a long impact. You also asked about historically Black medical colleges. Um, Some Black women did train at Women's Medical College, but more trained at Howard University and Meharry Medical College, which are the two historically Black medical schools in the U.S. that survived the era of medical education reform. And in the Flexner Report, Flexner infamously advises philanthropists to support only Howard and Meharry at the expense of this country's other five black medical colleges, all of which close. Once he's at the GEB, Flexner extends aid only to Howard and Meharry, but he allocates far more money to Meharry because he sees Howard as a uh, purview of the federal government, which did provide it with some financial support. So for this reason, in my research, I focus on Meharry um, also because it gives the opportunity to compare two Nashville medical schools, Just a few miles apart in Nashville, we have Meharry for black students and Vanderbilt for white students. And both receive tremendous funding from the general education board. Um, The general education board heavily supported their construction campaigns, which take place um, just a few years apart. Both end up constructing uh, the same type, which is that medical school hospital combined under one roof, but they're very, very different structures. Not surprisingly, the uh, Vanderbilt facility, um, more is spent per square foot on the building. The building provides more square footage per student than at Meharry. Um, So uh, to put it really bluntly, it's just just a nicer facility at Vanderbilt, Um, but it goes much deeper than that. Members of the GEB did not conceptualize Black physicians as medical scientists, and so they fund very, very little research space at Meharry, which is a stark contrast to the robust facilities for research that are constructed at Vanderbilt. At the same time, um, at Meharry, although they are training students in um, all areas of medicine, um, there is this real emphasis on public health outreach, which... um, is supported physically, architecturally by this very large public health lecture hall, donor funded, um, that really uh, encapsulates this idea that um, that at Meharry there'll be this emphasis on public health outreach. Now, interestingly, at Vanderbilt, um, the GEB is, is very committed to public health. Um, they're concerned about public health in the South in general, so they want to support public health in Nashville. But at Vanderbilt, it takes a completely different format where they want to support um, a research program. They want Vanderbilt to create this new um, innovative teaching technology, uh, teaching um, model, I should say. And so, um, again, uh, this very different conception of what medical education meant for black students and white students and then how that is um, promoted by the building itself.
0: Wow, that's really interesting. That sounds like it could be a topic of a book in itself. No-
1: <laughs> the chapter just kept getting longer and longer and longer. No, I, I think that's true. And I, and, I, and I think, you know, it's worth pointing out that not every medical school predominantly or exclusively for white men had the funding for a major research program and exceptional facilities, but, but black men, black women, and white women had no schools that met these criteria. Um, you know, Meharry, Howard, and Women's Medical College were critical sites for training medical students and really essential faculty opportunities that just, that weren't available elsewhere, but they didn't have the resources to construct the facilities on par with the schools for their uh, elite white male counterparts.
0: Yeah. And so essentially they weren't meant to be the ones going out and doing the research.
1: Right. And, and this idea that, that um, the schools were promoting very specific specialties as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, wow.
1: Um, so in Chapter 4,
0: which is called School Buildings and Marketing of Modern Medical Education, you describe how buildings were used to shape or modify public opinions. i learning, it's just fascinating how buildings have uh, shaped different things. But one example involves two controversial components of medicine, experimental animals and cadavers. So could you tell us what was the background to the controversy over those two things and how did building designers react or compensate to it?
1: Um, So, so yes, absolutely. Buildings are such active cultural participants. I think that a lot of us um, don't necessarily think of them that way, but, um, but I'm, I'm so excited to, that you're recognizing that and to talk, talk to you about these ideas. Um, So Medical schools depended on community support. They needed community support for patients, for funding, uh, for students, employees. And they recognized that specific aspects of medical training made some members of the public of the non-medical community uncomfortable. Um, They wanted to use the buildings then to, to help mitigate this discomfort as much as possible because they want a lot of public support. And one of these areas was animal experimentation. Medical educators worried um, about decreasing public support, you know, for all the reasons I just mentioned, but in the case of animal experimentation, also because of the fear that um, if the public really came out against animal experimentation, that there could then be legislation that would curb or prohibit the use of animals in the laboratory. And so physicians wanted to use the buildings as a way to help appease or ease, I guess I should say, ease um, these concerns. And so when you start to dig into the archival documents, um, first, there's the fear that really terrible spaces for animals, not only is that, you know, um, and they say this, not only is that, you know, morally repugnant, but, um, but they fear that that could really raise the anger of the public. And they describe really awful sounding conditions in some places with leaking roofs and poor ventilation and Um, lack of heat in the winter, and just really um, terrible spaces. And so the articles, as they're putting out these new buildings, as they're promoting these new buildings to the public, which was a huge part of the construction agendas, would detail in kind of, to me at least, sort of surprising levels of detail, um, the animal spaces in these buildings. And they would go into depth about the light and the ventilation and the heating and how they would be cleaned and what the diet for the animal was. One, one school says, you know, where every dog gets a dog biscuit every day. And and there's another, you know, this is clearly, I think has to be hyperbole, but you know, one medical Dean writes that the animal quarters are even comparable to patients, you know, facilities in a modern hospital. Right. So they're, you know, they're clearly trying to, um, shed this in the, you know, best possible light. Um, But then there's also just this element not only of creating what they hope will be facilities that are beyond reproach, but just not making them too visible. So um, they tend to house the animals discreetly. They are usually placed in um, the roofs, uh, on roofs, um, in basements. When there's a standalone animal house, it's typically, you know, on kind of the back edge of the medical campus, away from the more public spaces, or, or one school constructs a row of trees to put in front of the animal house. Um, so just sort of um, also capitalizing on the kind of out of sight, out of mind, hope at least. Um, and that sort of out of sight, out of mind is is also really permeates the buildings in terms of um, anatomy and dissection. Some members of the public registered their discomfort with dissection of human cadavers. And so the buildings were designed to transfer bodies as discreetly as possible. Um, On the interior, this often meant a separate elevator for for cadavers, for anatomical material. Um, In in one school, they even created a separate corridor that ran sort of parallel to the main hallway into the anatomy suite to move cadavers. Um, On the exterior, this meant things like separate enclosed entrances, again, strategically placed trees um, to help shield the arrival of cadavers from the neighbors. And when a dissection laboratory was on the ground floor, invariably these spaces would have opaque windows. Um, Historical photographs reveal that in some cases, even the windows in the dissecting rooms would only open from the top so that passersby couldn't inadvertently um, view a dissection in process so I, I, you know, I think we really need to understand these buildings as as actively participating in marketing medical education to the public by creating these strategic designs that help to minimize um, the controversial elements that really set medical training apart from other types of training. Yeah,
0: and I imagine those buildings were mostly in urban areas, were they?
1: Absolutely, because um, you know, once once in this once it becomes clear that that medical students are going to start working with clinical patients, then medical schools generally need to be in places where um where there's enough patient volume which means that they're almost always in urban places
0: yeah yeah it's just not something you think about how cadavers will get into the dissecting labs
1: right right exactly yeah so um
0: going into chapter five and it returns to the issue of students who were not white protestant males which made up the bulk of medical students, school students So the the minority students, particularly, again, uh, female and black students, and how they were receiving unequal treatment by medical colleges. And so we've got this uh, phrase, hidden curriculum. What was the role of architecture in the so-called hidden curriculum of medical education?
1: So we already talked about the differences um, between the historically black medical colleges and predominantly white institutions. Um, In chapter five, I changed the lens by looking at the hierarchies promoted by the architecture and the material culture, which is to say things like portraits and uniforms um, within the medical school campuses um, themselves. And so These certainly were environments that celebrated white Protestant men. Um, There were elements like portraits that only celebrate white men. Um, YMCA, Young Men Christian Association offices in the medical school building. Um, These are sort of physical design elements. And then there's also how the buildings were used. Um, For example, the black student who was allowed a room in the medical school dormitory, but then no one would speak with him, speak to him. Where I focus a great deal of my attention in peeling back this so-called hidden curriculum is looking at the rest spaces and the dormitories. So, um, for instance, at a, vi- at a variety of medical schools, uh, the elite schools, struggling schools, primarily white institutions, historically black medical colleges, at a variety of medical schools, the women had smaller restrooms, locker rooms, and lounges that were also less public. So what this meant was that you know both men and women students had the same constellation of suites, typically a restroom or toilet room, a locker room and a lounge, but the women's spaces were much smaller and they usually only had one door leading to the suite, um, which made the suite uh, less um, kind of visible, more, um, more private than the men's, which often had multiple entrances. And then sometimes they would actually take the entire women's suite and move it, um, or locate it, I should say, um, far from the men's suite in a much less public part of the building. And so the result was that uh, the women would be much less visible in the kind of general environment of the medical school than the male students. And, And sometimes people say to me, well, of course, there were smaller locker rooms for women. Admissions in this period was limited for women. There were quotas. But again, the point is, is that once the small locker room for women is constructed, it then becomes prescriptive of prescriptive of future decisions. Uh, it's very easy to say we can't have more women we don't have the facilities and and people did say that and so um, and so these there's a long reach once these spaces are constructed in this way the the other the other piece to consider is that when we look within the locker rooms and lounges the furniture reveals different expectations for the behaviors of women than for the men so um, women's spaces might generally include things like rocking chairs or um, couches for the women to lie down on um, types of behaviors that were not um, expected of the men. There wasn't the same type of furniture in the room for the men and the men's room often um, had things like uh, ashtrays. There's going to be smoking spaces, you know, um, activities that were gendered male. And so it creates this, um, this real dichotomy. I also on the same line do a deep dive into dormitories for medical students and nurses respectively and examine how the medical student dormitories were carefully crafted to emphasize autonomy and independence, which was a very different message than the ones projected by the nurses' dormitories. Of course, then what becomes more complicated is if the nurses are female and the med students almost entirely male, what happens when we have women medical students? In the case of Columbia, they had a dedicated section of the medical student dormitory, but appear to have um, used the pool and exercise facilities in the nurses' dormitory rather than in the medical student dormitory. So these these examples start to I think really give us a sense of how the physical environment promoted hierarchies related to race and gender and also to um, to profession you know nurse dentist pharmacist physician within the medical school.
0: Yeah, and those really important nuances that you bring out about the rocking chair versus the smoking,
1: <laughs> right? Right. What I means. mean, yeah, um, it's it's a. The, it's layers upon layers to create these environments.
0: Yeah, exactly. Because they can say, look, we've provided a uh, space to relax in for both of them.
1: Right. What's the big deal?
0: Uh, they're equal.
1: And yet they're two stories away and they're, you know, not in the main thoroughfare of the medical school.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, wow. So... Um, We've taken up a lot of your time today, Catherine, but I did want to ask you about the epilogue. And your study period began in 1893 and ends in 1940. And you use the epilogue to contemplate today's world. So what did you discover when you compared the design of today's medical schools with that of medical school buildings a century or more ago?
1: As as all of us would expect, it's no surprise that the building programs of schools constructed in the last 20 years are vastly different than the building programs from 100 years ago. You know, in the last 20 years, you're not going to find a museum. You're not going to find a central library. They probably have a digital commons instead. Um, In many places, there's no more suite for embalming and storing cadavers. And definitely gone are wings and wings and wings of huge teaching laboratories, which were so critical 100 years ago. These were cornerstones of design 100 years ago, and they just, they don't exist anymore. They're not necessary. But what has remained remarkably consistent is the commitment of medical education, excuse me, medical educators and architects to the idea that buildings participate in transforming medical training and shaping the identity of students. So although the conversations about what that means in terms of medical training and in terms of shaping the identity of students has changed, um, that belief is consistent. So themes today um, include things like cultivating interprofessional collaboration. I've seen spaces that are designed to bring nurses, physicians, social workers, pharmacists together, rather than this hierarchy that we were seeing 100 years ago. Now, whether that is successful, whether that is making the intended shift, that's a different conversation, but this, um, but this belief in the ability of architecture to shape um, pedagogy and identity continues. Um, uh, One, another example is creating spaces for students to, um, to collaborate, to have mentorship, you know, helping third year students mentor first year students. Um, These again are um, ideas that become, Reflected in the building and then promoted by the space itself. Uh, at the same time, a number of schools are reconsidering who is being celebrated in the buildings. Um, the result has been commissioning portraits of diverse faculty members, renaming spaces and organizations. Um, there's there's a kind of growing awareness of the environment that's uh, that's created. And I and I hope that by sort of peeling back what was created a hundred years ago, that will help medical educators today to um, to nuance these conversations in no small part because almost all of the buildings that were built 100 years ago are the cornerstones of the academic medical centers that are still with us today, that are in place across American cities today. So these buildings are generally highly renovated, but still very much in use. and um, And I think that there's a very kind of uh, living legacy of, of, um, of a really uh, rich and complicated moment. Um, but what hasn't changed over the last hundred years is the aspirations of medical educators who want to use architecture to promote the latest pedagogy and the conception of physician identity.
0: Well, it's good to know there are still physical spaces being focused on and not just virtual spaces.
1: Oh, yes. Yeah, <laughs> that is true. That is true. They may be functioning very differently, but they, they still exist. Yeah. Well,
0: I hope uh, medical educators and those involved in the design and the funding of designs will read your book. Um, again, everyone, it is Building Schools, Making Doctors, Architecture and the Modern American Physician uh, by Catherine L. Carroll. And Catherine, thank you so much for speaking. This is absolutely fascinating stuff.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me, Rachel. I've been really looking forward to it.